Right, so My name is Pat. And I have the privilege and the pleasure of being able to take you around the house here today. So just a bit of housekeeping to begin with. Will you be careful on the floors please? They're nearly 300 years old at this stage. They're slightly uneven on place, so we just have to be careful there. The saddle boards are slightly higher than what you'd normally be used to, so just be careful there. Other than that, take as many photographs as you like and ask as many questions as you like. So, you've seen the house, you've seen the street. You could only live on this street if you were rich and if you were powerful. And we had barons and lords and dukes, uh, bishops, archbishops, chancellors, vice-chancellors. And the man who built this street was a chap called Luke Gardner. Now, we don't know an awful lot about Luke Gardner. We think he was born on the south side of the city, uh, in a place called the Liberties, on the Coom. But we do know that by the time he was 30, he was a private banker, he was a member of the Irish Parliament, which stood on College Green, and he was also a property developer, and you might as well say town planner, because he built this street, Bolton Street, Marlborough Street, and the street that was to become O'Connell Street, and he built from here, or though the family over the next few generations built from here, as far as Crow Park, so they had a huge chunk of the north side of Dublin. And uh, as I said, only the most influential and powerful people lived on this street. And the first person to move into this house was a chap called Viscount Lord Richard Molesworth from Sores in County Dublin. And he was extremely rich and extremely powerful. Uh, his richness was, or his wealth was, in land. He had a big house and a estate in Sores in County Dublin. He had this house here. They had land on the south side of the city, Molesworth Street, it was Molesworth Fields then. They had a, a big house in Westminster in London, and it was also a large family estate in England. And his power was, Viscount Molesworth was in charge of the army here in Ireland, and that was an extremely important job, because at the time, Ireland had more troops per head of population than any other place in Europe. The reason being, the English who controlled us at the time were always afraid of two things. One, the native Irish would rebel and we kicked the English out. But their biggest and most abiding fear was that the French would attack Ireland and use as a backdoor to invade England. So that's why we had so many troops. Now the Viscount Maldon and his wife and his three daughters <coughs> were here for nearly... Um, Ten years, Viscount Molesworth died in London, and his wife, burdened with five houses, she decided that she was going to sell two of them. She sold this one and the one on the south side, and this house was then bought by a chap called Baron John Bowles, and right up until 1800, there was various lords and their families living in this house. Then in 1800, we had the Act of Union. The Act of Union was when the Parliament of Great Britain was united with the Parliament of Ireland. Now Ireland had its own Parliament from 1495 to 1800. We had a House of Commons, we had a House of Lords, and things were happening that the British Prime Minister, William Pitt, had absolutely no control over, but it was causing him concern. The British had lost America in 1776, there had been the French Revolution, there had been a rebellion here in Ireland in 1798, mainly a Protestant rebellion, and the English Prime Minister decided that the best course of action would be to combine the Parliament of Great Britain with that of Ireland, and he used the most basic means possible. He arranged for bribes to be given to the sitting MPs and Lords. You know, nowadays we say money talks. 
In those days, money screamed and money shouted, and if you gave it enough away, you got the vote that you wanted. And that's what happened. Uh, now, there were a few patriotic speeches made by the likes of Malone and Wood and, of course, Henry Grattan, but they healed the hunt, the money did its job, and on the 1st of January, 1801, the combined Parliament of Great Britain and Ireland met for the first time in Westminster, London, which meant that houses like this, streets like this, they all moved down a couple of notches on the social scale, because the MPs and the Lords, they started selling these houses, and this street here became a legal street, because at the top of the street there, you've got the King's Inns, King's Inns is where we train barristers and solicitors, and right up until 1877, or 1870s, most of the houses in this street, they were legal chambers. Then in, 1870, in the 1870s, the area was becoming more and more run down. So the listers and barristers were moving towards the south side, Stevens Green and Merrion Square. Property developers were buying up the houses, converting them into apartments. And in 1877, Thomas Vance from Black Rock in County Dublin bought this house and he converted it into 17 luxurious apartments. The luxury being, we had some gas lighting. We had two toilets inside and one outside, and we had a cold water tap in the basement. Absolute luxury. But by 1911, there was over 100 people living in the house, and over 1,000 people living on the street. And we still only had the same facilities. And the house continued as a tenement right up until 1979. 1979, the house had been condemned as unfit for human occupation. The last person moved, was moved out. And then, um, there about 17 years ago, the city council bought the house. And they had no plans for the house. They stabilised the house. And uh, there about eight years ago, we had an open day. And we invited people in this, that used to live here when it was a tenement house to come in and tell stories of tenement life. And it was from their stories we got the Tenement Museum. But we celebrate everybody who passed through the house, from the Moldsworths who moved in first to the last person who moved out. You know, So it's a little experience that you have from Georgian times right up to tenement times. Now there is a portrait there of Viscount Moldsworth and all his finery. Now, as befitting his role, he's pointing to a battle, battle scene. It's the Battle of Ramillies, which you all know was one of the battles in the wars of the Spanish succession. And the Viscount Moldwood moved in here with his second wife and three daughters. His first wife had died, and when that man's first wife died, that man was totally bereft of life. He lost the will to live. He was totally inconsolable, but a couple of weeks later, he got married again. This time he was 64, and his new young wife was nearly 15 years of age, right? And he got married out of a sense of duty. He had three daughters, but he wanted a son and an heir. Yeah, I think he had another five daughters before he eventually had the son that he always wanted, but he never saw the son that he always wanted because he died two weeks before his son was born in London, so he never saw the son that was there. Now, of the people who lived in the street, the Maldors have done a tour of the house. Now, they have very little connections here with Ireland apart from Maldors Street on the south side. The gardeners have been through the house, the people who lived in the tenements uh, have been through here, and of course the other people who lived here, um, the other nobility on the street, members of those families have been through, like, you know, through the house. Now, in Georgian times, when the Molesworths were here, there would have been about 20 to 25 servants operating and running the house. 
Now only the most important servants actually lived in the house. You'd have the butler, the governess, maybe the housekeeper. The rest of the servants would live out in the coach house out the back. Now every house here had a tunnel under the garden from the coach house to the kitchen area because the Georgian gentlemen and ladies did not like looking at their servants coming to and from work. And also you never see on television, your servants were also your fire alarm and your burglar alarm. So when the family went to bed at night, servants would be allocated a room to sleep in. You know, they would watch the fire to make sure nobody broke in. Some of these servants would have been armed. Your footmen and your butlers would have slept at the door and they would have been armed. And now these days we call these people bouncers because basically that's what they were at the time. Like, you know. This bed was made to order for Bartholomew Moss, founding master of the Thunder Hospital in 1759 by the famous furniture maker and wood carver John Kelly. It is made of mahogany and is an example of Irish Rococo decoration. It has witnessed many births, marriages and deaths. So I start off by mentioning Bartholomew Moss, founding master of the Thunder Hospital in 1759. Now the Thunder is a maternity hospital at the top of O'Connell Street, very top of O'Connell Street. Now Bartholomew Moss, he was born outside Port Leash in 1712. It came to Dublin to study medicine. By the time he was 22, he had qualified as a doctor and a surgeon. But he was always concerned about the amount of orphans that roamed the streets of Dublin because so many women died in childbirth. And it didn't matter whether you were rich or whether you were poor because Paul says it there, birth the leveler. And uh, he was so concerned that he actually took out a special license to be a male midwife, which was very, very unusual at the time. Between Britain and Ireland, there might have been six male midwives. And um, he was also a very curious guy. He'd spent time on the continent, going to centres of learning, the hospitals, to find out what the latest surgical techniques and practices were. He, one year he was in Leiden and Florence, and he was coming back home through Paris. And while he was in Paris, he discovered, lo and behold, there was a maternity ward and he swore that once he got back to Dublin he was going to found a maternity hospital. So he started off on the south side in Georgia Street, he bought a house, he put in 12 beds, but he wanted, which was very unusual at the time, a purpose-built maternity hospital. So he came to the gardeners, he bought four acres off the gardeners at the top of O'Connell Street, it was then called Brooklyn Square, and he sold the plots around the square for houses. In the centre there was this park before the hospital was ever built, and in that park he'd have concerts, recitals, fireworks display, you name it, anything you could possibly do to raise money for the hospital. The hospital opened, 1759, uh, that was the year Bartholomew Moss died. He was 47 years of age at the time, and he died of exhaustion, because all his adult life was consumed with making life better for the women and the children of this city. And when you think of that hospital over there, over three quarters of a million children have brought safely, been brought safely into the world in the hospital. Yeah, in Dublin, there's not a street, there's not an alley, there's not a laneway named after that guy. In Dublin, we've streets named after people who didn't like the Irish, uh, people who never set foot in Dublin, uh, people who owned slaves, and yet this great, the hero of the city, is almost forgotten. And this is Bartholomew Moss's bed. It was bought a number of years ago by a family, and they wanted to present it to the Rotunda Hospital. But at this stage, Rotunda Hospital, it's the oldest maternity hospital in the world. It's a fully functioning hospital. The hospital couldn't accommodate the bed. So the family have kindly loaned it to us for a number of years. And you can see Bartholomew Moss's crest. It's the Griffin. The griffin is a mythical board with lion's feet, and we can see the lion's feet down there. And also, when the Rotunda Hospital opened first, 
all of the beds were four poster beds we know that because we have the receipts and for many if not all of the women who gave birth in those beds it was probably the first time in a bed of any type never mind the four poster bed like you know so this guy was an exceptional if forgotten hero to the people of Dublin like you know now we're moving out now to the tenement party experience okay I'll ask you to be careful of the walls okay because it's just uh, the paint work is very precious to us okay when you come out here one of the first things you notice are the colours these are the tenement colours and practically every tenement house in Dublin was painted these colours rickets blue and red rattle and at the time people believed that these colours could prevent you getting any one of the numerous uh, contagious diseases that were rampant at the time now I'm talking about diphtheria, meningitis, polio and of course the biggest killer of all would have been um, tuberculosis and now these colours have absolutely no impact at all on your health rickets blue it might have a slight antiseptic but it's not going to affect your health in any way the red rattle is a type of fungus it might kill some mushrooms, maybe dry rot, but it's not going to impact your, impact your health in any way. But people had to believe something. And if you went around, when I was a kid going around the tenement houses, this was just a familiar colour. It was like every time you went in, it was like going home, you know? And um, imagine what it'd be like with a hundred people living here, right? Now, we know from the census returns that there definitely was a hundred people living here because we have their names, their occupations, and their. Uh, ages but also it was an open door tenement the front door and the back door was always open so there was always men and women coming in and sleeping on the stairs and the lobbies in this house you know so it was a very busy house and you can imagine men and women going to work children going to school everybody shopped on a daily basis then and then of course everybody had to slop out everybody here had a bucket because those toilets 99% of the time they didn't work you know now the landlord had a heart to go people have told us that lived here every six or seven weeks he'd send around someone to unblock the toilets pure generous guy like you know and um, you also have to imagine like you know what it was like people who have lived here have told us that when they were children they used to lay coming in here of an evening because this hallway was always pitch black there was no lighting, the windows weren't there and when they were children they'd come in and they'd shout, Ma, Dad, you got a light now a light was used, you twist a piece of paper flow down there between the stairwell and when the light was going up, going down the child would be running up as fast as he or she possibly could but you had to make as much noise as you possibly could because you had to frighten away the mice and the rats that shared the house with you you know, so it just gives you some idea of what it was like. And also, people have told it was a very noisy house. It was like a cross between a maternity ward and uh, Crow Park on All-Ireland Sunday. Like, you know, that'll just give you some idea of what it was like. And also, the smells in the house were always strong. You know, people remember when the toilets weren't working, you had to take your bucket, empty out the showers out the back, or you had a bit of a cesspit out the front, or out, sorry, out the back, you can imagine what the smells would be like you know really strong smells then you had the mice and the rats the maggots you know the blue bottles just it was really really 
very, very unhealthy to stench, like, you know. And then the cooking, you know, people had tripe and liver and kidneys, like, you know, and everybody seemed to have liver on the tories, like, you know. So that was the way it was at the time, like, you know, the most nutritious parts of the meals, but also, um, they give off a strong smell when you're cooking them, like, you know. And also, when the city council got this house back, you see these uh, banisters here on the handrail, there was only three original left. The rest went in times of hardship for cooking and for heating the rooms, you know. And also, we have a bit of graffiti over here. Somebody has written over here, in the best Dublinese, that's the language I'm speaking, any person who tampers with anything or who is not a resident of this house will not will, uh, will face prosecution. So you can see that there. So we, and you can see the way thing is T-I-N-G. So people had pride in their surroundings. Now this wasn't always considered a class A tenement. It wasn't condemned until 1979. And mind you, that might have suited the authorities because they otherwise they would have had to rehouse the people who lived here, like, you know. But we know people who lived here, the women on a regular basis, there was a rota, and every morning and every evening, these stairs, landings and lobbies would have been cleaned out, you know, for, by the people here, like, you know. Now also, if you lived at the top there, right, and you wanted to slop out, or you wanted to book the water, you had to come down 97 steps. And this was mainly women's work. And then you had to haul your book of water all back up. And you'd be doing that a few times during the day, because these were all big families. You know? It was really, really hard. And if you went down to do your washing, there was a Belfast sink down the basement down there. People who have lived here have told us, during the winter months, when it'd be really, really cold, women would be down there washing their clothes. But their arms, from their fingertips to their shoulders, would be blue, purple with the cold. That just gives you some idea of what it was like, you know? Now, as we go down the stairs, you'll see these little spores on the handrail there. They were put there in 1877 by Mr. Vance to protect his investment. He didn't want children sliding down the banisters. So it just gives you some idea of what it was like, okay? So come on down this way, please. Now you can feel the change of atmosphere here, you can feel the dampness, you can feel the cold, right? This is the basement. And um, in 1913, a number of houses collapsed near here. Seven people died instantly, numerous people were injured, and some of them were so badly injured that we had more deaths subsequently. And as a result of that housing uh, collapse, a uh, housing inquiry was called for 1914 here in Dublin. And in Dublin at the time was a chap called John Cook. Now John Cook was a member of the Dublin Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Children, but he was also an amateur photographer. He knew that the housing inquiry was coming along, so he went around Dublin taking photographs of horrible conditions that people lived in to show the inquiry because he knew, a man before his time, he knew that an image was worth a thousand words. So um, this little scene here is based on one of his photographs. Now, we have a bed here, but not everybody in the tenements lived in a bed. People that I know that lived in the tenements have told me, Pat, we slept on a thing called a pallias. Now, a pallias was like a long pillowcase that in the autumn would be stuffed to a mixture of straw and horsehair. By Christmas, it was like sleeping on broken matchsticks. And by Easter, you were basically sleeping on strawdust. And when you woke up, you hung your pallias up because if you didn't hang her up, the mice and the rats found her very attractive. And if you didn't hang her up, you'd have unwanted company when you went to bed at night, you know? But when you did have a bed, air duvets 
we weren't changing them in winter and summer. Air duvets had sleeves, they had pockets, and they had buttons. And our favourite was the old army coat, like, you know. So this was our duvets that we had at the time. And when we had sheets, our sheets were usually flower sacks that we would have got from the local bakery, you know. So we had St. Peter's Bakery, and we had um, North King Street Bakery, and those sheets would be opened up. And sometimes our mothers were very creative, you know. You know the way people nowadays, they pay a fortune for a t-shirt or a logo on it, like, say, super wet and trans vans and all that. In those days, your mother cut the corner of the flower sack, cut a hole for your head, and you had a t-shirt that said, Odenlin's Mills or Boland's Mills. We were just way ahead of time at the time. And by the way, everybody here, and we have a poll here, everybody here had a bucket, right? A portable ensuite, you know? And you have to imagine that, apparently the lack of privacy around all this, you have to imagine as well, you know, because of the diet and because of constant illness, the aromas could have been quite strong within the room. And this is where you did your bit of cooking, right? On your little cooking ranch here, you might have had a bit of store about, a bit of porridge in the morning. You had uh, an awful lot of stews and coddles, and an awful lot of blind stews and blind coddles. A blind stew is one without little, with little meat, or no meat uh, in it, like, you know. And you would have had a little bit of a fry. Now, people didn't have bread and butter. People had bread and dripping, right? And if you're doing your bit of fried bread, it was bread and dripping. And the nicest bit of fried bread that you'll ever taste will be bread and dripping. Now, you won't do it very often because you'll die of a heart attack, but it was uh, there at the time, like, you know? And then... When you're poor, everybody's out to get you. And some of the most notorious people, now right from Roman times, there's been laws about bakers, because bakers were notorious for polluting their product. You know, using an inferior meal, even putting sawdust into their um, their product like you know they were really really bad like you know and in Dublin we had a famous bakers now you have to remember that right up on the second world at the end of the second world war most people in Ireland had brown bread very few people had white or fancy bread like you know and uh, there's a famous bakery in Dublin that was notorious for polluting its product and it was closed down by the children of this city now, they didn't occupy the building, they didn't protest outside, they had a little nursery rhyme. Kennedy's bread killed a man dead, especially the man with the baldy head. And it was a series of these, and it was those series of rhymes that closed down the bakery, like, you know. Now, also you have to remember, in tenement times, the two cheapest places to rent was the basement and the attic. You could never heat them, and they were always, always damp. And under that window over there, in this basement, in 19, June 1938, Peter Brannigan was born. His mother told him if he hadn't been born in the winter, he wouldn't have survived. Now, Peter was the youngest of 11. And they moved from here, the reception area where he came in, they moved up to there, like, to escape the dampness. And also in tenement times, the general rule was, no rent out you went. And people who lived here have told us the landlords didn't have a heart. They showed no mercy. Families would be evicted from here. And they'd have nowhere else to go. And we know that families, you see those cellar areas out there, families who had nowhere else to go, they'd resort to living in those cellar areas for days, maybe weeks on end. And on a day like today when it's raining, the rain just percolates down through the road and families would have had to endure that. It'd be like living in a cold shower, you know? 
and families endure that until something better came along. So you can just imagine what it was like at the time. Palias. Okay. Uh, it comes from a Latin word like now that they would have slept on the floor. Not very many people had beds. You have to remember at the time, like and there would have been multiple occupancy, like, you know? Yeah. One man that lived here he says, The only joy about sleeping in that bed with all my brothers and sisters, I never had to worry about biting my toenails. You know, that was our cutting toenails. So that gives you some idea what it was like. And you know the old jokes, as many as the man learned to swim in those beds, like, you know, because that was the way it was at the time, like, you know? Because the first first time I ever slept on my own, in a room on my own, was the night my eldest son was born, like, you know? So that just gives you some idea. We're always there, thing, like, you know? But the thing about it was, we lived in corporation flats, and sisters come over from England and all that, and you'd be put them up, you wouldn't, two bedrooms. And another two families would come over, and we'd all be sleeping everywhere, like, you know? That was uh, the way at the time, but you just accommodated, you got on, like, you know? Is it not strange to find that Dublin, a city famous for its charitable institutions and its charitable citizens, should also be infamous for the perfectly hellish conditions under which its people are housed and under which its men, women and children labour for a living? That's from the writings of James Connolly. He was one of the leaders of the 1916 East Rebellion here in Dublin and he himself was executed in April 1916 for his part in that rebellion. A third of children died before they reached their fifth birthday. Now that's exceptionally high, but it's not the full truth, because that doesn't include the children who died in the orphanages, in the workhouse, in the mother and baby's homes. People reckon it could be up as high as 60%, right? Dublin had the highest child mortality rate than any other place in Europe at the time. Right, it was exceptionally bad. And you know, nowadays when we think about funerals, we think about fancy hearses and flowers and coffins and church services. In those days, and by the way, I'm talking about up until the 1960s, the father got a very simple coffin. The funeral mass for children in this area was at 6 o'clock in the morning. The father would walk over with the coffin. Uh, there's many today. There was a few coffins in front of the altar. And then when the mass was over, the father would walk out the glass seven cemetery, hand the coffin to the grave digger, and then the father would come straight back into town, usually to go straight to work, because in those days there was no time for uh, grieving, there was no time for mourning, and rarely did the mother know where her beloved child was buried. And people have sat in this room and said, Pat, you are talking about my brother's funeral, or you are talking about my sister's funeral. It's still there in people's memory. And um, of course, then you're going to work when you're 12 or 13. You know, and people have said, we were only kids starting work. We were working these long hours, we come home. We were still only children. We still wanted to go out to play. That's the way it was at the time, like, you know. And uh, then you're usually married in your teens. And weddings around here, by the way, usually took place at 7 o'clock in the morning. You might be lucky enough to have a bit of a wedding breakfast, but frivolous things like honeymoons didn't exist, and you had to go to work. You know, and life expectancy for a man was late 40s, early 50s, for a woman, late 50s, early 60s. And when you have nothing, nobody wants you. When you're poor, nobody wants you. And people console themselves by saying, what you haven't got today, you'll have tomorrow. But for most of these people, that tomorrow never came, like, you know. But right from going to school when you were grown up, you knew your place in the world. When I was going to school, my father was going to school, my grandfather was going to school, we were all taught the same lesson. 
that in life we're only entitled to three things roof overhead, coal on the fire and food on the table to dream, to aspire to anything else was almost the same that's the way it was, you know, at the time and uh, of course disease was always prevalent you know death was people who were inured to death like you know and one of the biggest killers of all was tuberculosis we used to call it consumption but it was a preferred type of consumption it was called galloping consumption and people would pray that their loved ones would get galloping consumption because if you got galloping consumption you could be dead within a month to six weeks avoid months, maybe years of pain, hurt and agony imagine praying that your loved ones would get that form of disease but that's the way it was and when I'm talking up to the 1960s people remember this and then of course the big families you know, people think it was like the Waltons or something like that, it was just pure hardship, you know people have sat here, one woman sat here Patsy said it was like having two husbands I had the priest in the pulpit saying procreate, procreate, procreate I had the husband here obliging but nobody ever thought about the consequences of the woman's mental or physical health another woman saying one time Pat if I had a ball and chain on my ankle and I was a prisoner once that ball and chain is cut I'm free with a woman I have the emotional chains so there was never any escaping like you know it was just constant hardship for people like you know and uh, then mentioned there is the like, lockout in 1914 now the 1914 lockout was a major event in the history of Dublin City. In 1913, the wages in Dublin were lower than any other place in Britain or Ireland. Lower than Belfast, Bradford, Birmingham, Manchester, London, Glasgow. Really, really low. And the trade union movement were coming to the fore, led by Big Jim Larkin. You can see his statue in O'Connell Street. And the trade union, or the trade unions, tried to negotiate with the employers, but the employers, led by Corkman, William Martin Murphy, would not deal with the trade unions. And on the 26th of August 1913, the unskilled workers of Dublin, you know, up to 25 to 30,000 people, were locked out of their jobs from the 26th of August to the 18th of January 1914. Almost six months left without pay. And these were the poorest of the poor. You know, they didn't have bank accounts, most of them had nothing to pawn. These were locked out. It was a form of genocide. Now, thankfully, the British Trade Union sent over money, they sent over fuel for the fire, they sent over clothes and that. You know, even at one stage, the unions talked and said, well, the children shouldn't have, have to suffer what was going on here in Dublin. They shouldn't be starved to death. And the, the unions agreed that boats would dock on the quays here and bring the children over to England. Well, as soon as the Catholic Church heard about that, they arranged for priests to stand on the gangplanks of those boats, threatening to excommunicate the parents if they allowed the children to go. They would sooner see the children starve on the streets of Dublin than go to pagan England. That's the way it was. And children did starve. I have seen death certificates where it says, this child died of malnutrition, this child died of want and bread and milk. And my grandmother was one of the children who was supposed to go there, like, you know. And William Martin Murphy, the leader of the employees, he also owned the Irish Independent newspapers. 
if you ever want to do research on 1940 in the locker, do not read an Irish newspaper read a British newspaper because the man that controlled the newspaper also was against the workers in this city you know, it was the same William Martin Murphy who also called for the execution of the leaders of the 1916 East Rebellion you know, and William or Jim Larkin, you can see his statue on Coal Street, it's between the GPO and Cleary's department store. He has his arms outstretched, and uh, he's on the pedestal of that statue, there's a part of a speech where he says, The great are only great because the poor are on their knees. That was part of the speech where James Jim Larkin went on to say that the poor were being crucified on the streets of Dublin. The poor were being crucified on the streets of Dublin by fellow Irishmen. Always remember that. The poor were being crucified by fellow Irishmen. And then we had a, an inquiry, a housing inquiry in 1914. Nothing happened. Landlords are always great at protecting their vested interests. And on Dublin City Council in 1914, of the city councillors, 16 were actually landlords. And these landlords, if you ever listen to the speeches that they made in the City Hall, they talk about, you know, Ireland on free will never be at peace, we have to have home rule and all that. All these people wanted to do was to extract the rents out of other people's misery. And they went to this inquiry and they denied everything, the problems with the sewage and the drainage, the overcrowding, this, the unsanitary conditions, they denied everything, you know, absolutely everything. But the same landlords would not allow you to carry out any improvement, you know, because these landlords blame the people who live in these houses. These landlords said that the tenants would do nothing. But if the tenant carried out any improvement, what happened was the landlord's property taxes went up, the rates, and his profits went down. So they didn't want you to do anything in these uh, rooms, like, you know. And then, um, the, when I was going to school, there used to be a phrase in my history book, and I used to talk about the absentee landlord. And I used to think all of these properties were owned by Englishmen. They weren't. They were all owned by Dublin men. Each and every one of them. So if your Irish-born employer wasn't out to kill you, certainly your uh, Dublin-born landlord was, you know. And then there was another inquiry in 1970 and nothing happened. No, we knew nothing was going to happen. 1918, the Great War is over. Over 100,000 Irish men fought, uh, or took part in the Second War, or the First World War. Half of them died on the battlefields of Europe. The other 50,000 were coming back home, and they brought with them Spanish flu. And that had a huge impact on inner city Dublin. Then in uh, 1922, Ireland gets its independence. But you see, Dublin was never an Irish city. You know, it was a Viking town, it was a Norman town, it was a Georgian city, and the people who founded this country. They wanted a Gaelic speak in Ireland with Celtic myths and legends, comely maidens dancing on the crossroads. Dublin didn't fit into that, you know? And if you go around Ireland, every county in Ireland has a nickname. You know, we've got the Archer County, the Banner County, the Lily Whites, the Rebel County, Nadesha. Dublin are the Jacks, the Jackians. In Irish we're called Michonians. And the reason we're called the Jacks was because we waved the Union Jack. 
So it wasn't really on the 1940s that the city council began to build Crumlin and Carberry, these suburban places, but the tenements were still around until the 70s and the 80s, when a chap called Tony Gregory was elected to Dáil Éireann, the parliament here, he held the balance of power, Charlie Hoy wanted to be Taoiseach, and as part of what known as, was known as the Gregory Deal, the tenements in Sean McDermott Street, Summerhill and Corporation Street went. So we had them for quite a long time afterwards. If you are living in these conditions, and people have told us we went to bed early, and we didn't go to bed early because we know television, to stay warm and to stave off the pangs of hunger. You know, we forget about that, like, you know, and it seemed to the man here, you're like, talking about living in tenements in Dublin, and how miserable it was, like, you know, that you, you had absolutely nothing, you know. Up on the 1920s, um, most people living here, they weren't staying here, it wasn't going to be their lifetime home. They were moving in here, and they were staying here for a number of years. We know from the 1900, between the 1901 census and 1911 census, there was only one family in continuous occupation in this house over those 10 years. Now, the rooms were always occupied, the landlord was always getting his rent, but the, the people were moving around, whether it be down towards uh, Corporation Street, they were moving over towards the Liberty East, or France Street, wherever between places like that. Five families even emigrated during that period. And then after the 1920s, people began, began to personalise that bit of space, like, you know. And you can see, you can see the, if you look up at the frieze up there, the corners up there, you can see layers and layers of whitewash, because these rooms would have been mainly whitewashed. And then if you look over the mantelpiece there, we've restored a small amount of that frieze. You can see the delicate uh, fla the flowers and the orange and all that, like, you know. So it's so different what you see there, like, you know. And also in the 1930s and 40s, people were getting gas stoves, so they were getting the cooking range they put in there, like, you know? Now, look, and then, of course, the bit of wallpaper. That we found a bit, that's from the 1940s, and we had a recreate by a chap called David Skinner up in Nijikor. But if you look here, in this room, can you imagine in this room, Mr. and Mrs. Hurricane live, now I've talked to the Hurricanes, they lived here with ten children. Look at the size of it. Right? Now imagine, you cooked, you know, you did your food prep in here, you slept in here, you were entertained in here, you also had your bucket in here, your mobile en suite in here, in one room. And next door was the Shields, and the Shields had 12 children. So you get some idea of the size of the, uh, the families like, you know, and the conditions. 17 families lived here. Peter Brannigan is the man that was born in the basement 84 years ago. We celebrate his birthday here this June in the exact place where he was born. Very few people can do that. And the lady is Jane Lynch. She was born in the attic, but I'm too much of a gentleman to re re reveal the lady's age. And the children's voices that you heard are from local girls called Colossus who were there in Chernobyl Cornell. And also, by the way, when you look at that, we know an awful lot of the names of the children in those videos because since the museum opened four years ago, people have been coming in, they've identified themselves and their friends. So we know enough awful lot more than you'd actually uh, think like, you know, and how little they had to keep themselves amused. You know, you had the ball, you had the rope, you had a polished team where you played beds with or hopscotch, um, you know, a bit of wood you played rounders, you played cricket with, like, you know, that was it. But you were never, ever bored. I was rare there in Flats off Thomas Street. You come down in the morning, town was your playground. You went around, like, you know, not long ago, my uh, grandson, he's taught there and he said to me, he was bored. I looked from home, I said, I was never bored. You know, I didn't even know the meaning of the word boring until I was old enough to do a crossword. That's the way it was at the time, like, you know. But then there's other things that weigh on people's mind. I finished the tour here once, it was uh, this, September, three years ago. 
and uh, Tor finished and the man is in his 80s he comes to me and said Patty says do you think there'll be any chance for renting a room here for Christmas day and I looked at him and I now it's not my job to say to her I promise so I said you'll have to ask and I said why would you want to rent a room here for Christmas day well he said I was born in this house he says I left this house when I was 15 to go and walk on the streets of London my mother had uh, 13 children before I left to another two children were born he said and said Lee I've been thinking I'd love to sit down and have Christmas dinner with my siblings he said I've never sat down with my brothers and sisters for Christmas dinner and uh, well I said if you're serious about it they're after restoring the big house across the way it's a uh, corporate B&B I said it's a travel agency in the Oilac Centre you have a phone go down and do it I said if you don't do it now while the mood is on you you're never going to do it so I completely forgot about it until I was sitting down for my own dinner Christmas day and of course there's about 20 around the table the sweat was pumping out of me I was saying I'm never going to do this again like you know and then I thought of that man and you get a little lump in your throat, you know, and it's like you say, you say to yourself, please God, to walk down from me, it's the prayer. And, uh, but then I came back here after Christmas, and the most beautiful letter, he brought back all his brothers and sisters, they'd stayed over there, like you know, and um, he brought them from Canada, States, Australia, New Zealand, all over the UK, like you know, the first time ever that that man had sat with brothers and sisters around the one table. It's just incredible um, when you get that, like, you know, it's little things that mean a lot to people. But then there's another time I was here, and a man, also in his 80s, you know, he's finished the tour, he said, told me that he was reared in Donnybrook. Now, Donnybrook is a fairly salubrious suburb, like, you know, but he said, growing up there, he said, it was like growing up in a mausoleum, like growing up in a graveyard. And uh, he went on to study law, and he had to come up to the top of the road here to take lectures in the King's Inns. And he said he was just always fascinated from the time he reached the bottom of the street here to the, to the short journey that it was up to the Kings in there. He was always fascinated by the happiness, the contentment, the joy, the love that he experienced on the street. He'd never ever seen anything like it. And he said, Pat, in my life, he said, I was a barrister, then I became a judge, then I became a high court judge, he said. And he says, I never made a decision that was going to affect anybody. And he says, I had to incarcerate people. I had to send sentence people. But he said, I never made a decision on anybody's future until I reflected back to the happiness that I experienced on this street here. And he said, as many as the parents in this country got a far lesser sentence that they deserved, and they never know it was because of the happiness that I experienced on this street. So it's little things that have an effect on people. You know, it's not the big things in life, like, you know. So we'll just go in here to Mrs. Shields. This room here has bits from practically every area in the house. Okay, we've got a bit of Georgian stenciling. You can see our cornice, the freeze around there. You can see how heavily you covered in, you know, this duvet of paint that you have there. And then when you look over the mantelpiece there, you can see the delicate swags of fruits. You can see the two mare boys there supporting the basket of fruit on the back. It's quite, you know, delicate, like, you know. And uh, other things we have here, these lines here on the walls and on the on the floor, these indicate where the partitions were. Now you can imagine Mr. and Mrs. Shields living here. That was the height of the partitions, by the way. Now these ceilings are 14 foot high. The ceiling, the partitions only went up about 8 foot, and that was to allow for light and ventilation into these two rooms at the back. So you can imagine when Mr. and Mrs. Shields lived here, 
that door was blocked up that door was blocked up you came in here off the corridor this is your little scullery now remember we never ever had running water we never had a sink unit and we never had a fridge you know so you get some idea of what it was like and that fireplace over there that was bought by the two eldest brothers of the Shields they bought it in the 19, early 1970s it's from Clifford's and Dorset Street and they actually put it in themselves and I've met the lads they put it in like you know other things in the room. This is your this is an arts and dwelling, okay? Now in the eighteen eighties, certain families, prominent Dublin families, were concerned about the housing conditions in Dublin and they established what was known as the Arts and Dwelling Company. And they built about three and a half thousand of these houses. You know, you can see them in Stony Valley, you can see them in Liberties, you can see them in Hurl's Cross, you see them in Bray, you see them in Wicklow. And um, now you probably recognise the families from uh, the products that they produce Guinness, Power, um, Jemison, you know, Watkins and Pims and of course uh, Beulish and Vondal so you get some idea there and of course the Earl of Mead was involved in it as well like you know so they built these houses there's the other house that you see over there that's your standard corporation house from 1922 to 1972 that was your standard house and the flats that we see they're modelled on the ones outside we'll hear more about them in the video that we're going to see next so do you want to sit down there now and we'll see this is your last video here today now, every time I see that video, and I've seen it hundreds of times, I'm always amazed at what we could do in the 1930s and 40s, when as a city, as a country, we hadn't got two brass pennies to rub together, and yet, all the building that we could do. I mean, you think today, we're supposed to be one of the most prosperous economies in Europe, and how miserably we fail, like, you know? And then there's other times, history just slaps you in the face when you're doing a tour like this. I was here not long ago, and... Um, there's a lady sitting in the front there, she's her daughter. She started to sob, she started to cry, I didn't know what the story was. And then she started saying, I thought they forgot about us, I thought they forgot about us. And I got talking to her, and it turned out that housing that collapsed in June 1963 happened in a place called Fenian Street. Now Fenian Street is beside Merrion Square, close to Doyle Erden, close to National Gallery. She was a seven-year-old child in 1963. She'd left the house to go and tell her friend that she wasn't going out to play. And when she turned around, she saw the house collapse and her neighbours crushed to death. You know? And she had left uh, school at 14. She worked in Jacob's Biscuits factories until the time she was 18. 18, she went over to live in Cowley in Oxford. And she rarely came back to work. And her daughter that was sitting there beside her on the day had never heard that story. She'd never discussed it with her family, like, you know? So history is always there and it's always catching up with you. Now, we're going into the last room here now. This is where the last people who lived here reside, okay? So come on in here, me, please. We're going to have some apple chowder. We're going to have it set out specially for you. Uh, now, in the 1940s, George and Elizabeth Dowling, they moved in here. This was their first marriage home. Now, Elizabeth Dowling, formerly Buchanan, was born and reared the house across there. George, who was a docker, he was from Townsend Street. They got married and they set about living here. They had three children, Peter, Joe and young Lily. But George died uh, when the children were young. He died of tuberculosis. And Mrs. Dowling, she was a fairly formidable woman. And um, she trained, you can see inside, as a tailor and as a seamstress. She went straight back to work. And she had lots of support on the street. 
and uh, Shirer, the family. And then when the notion of the Tenement Museum has been talked about, the Dowling grandchildren came to us and said, we'll show you what it was like when our grandfathers lived here. Now, we'd already started on that partition there, so they came along with family photographs, pictures, uh, bits of furniture. In the china cabinet over there, there's a doll in a blue dress. That was given to young Lily on the day her father was being buried by one of her uncles to console her, you know. We recreated the line of that you see there. Now, it's not forensic, but it's as people would have remembered it at the time, like, you know. And also, it looks more prosperous than you'd expect. Now, you have to remember that the Dowlings were in residence for the best part of 50 years, and there's a big difference between rearing three children and rearing 12 or 15 children, like, you know, so that's why things. And Mrs. Dowling, she's in her 80s, the last person to live officially in this house and you can imagine when she was living here she still had to go down to the basement for water she still had to use the toilet down there she still had to battle with the mice and the rats but moving around the corner to Dominic's three flats was just life changing for her she didn't want to go because any emotion that she'd ever known happened in this house or in this street you know all the love that she'd ever known was on this street you know the sadness she had to bury her parents from the house across the road she had to bury her husband from here but every emotion that she could live through was in this street here like you know and as I said it was a heavy heart that she moved around the corner and people say that when she moved around every day that she could she'd come up and she'd sit in the seats, see the steps there opposite the house she was born and she'd look and reflect and she's never really left you know she's still here with us today like you know now I hope you've enjoyed your little trip through 300 years of history it's a special type of history and the people who lived here especially in town Tenements are all people they're all special like you know so have a look around take your photographs if you have any questions I'll be outside okay